What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me your milkshake! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Wisecrack Show Me the Meaning team. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And Ryan. What up, film fans? Are you ready to rock? Show me your blood! I'm ready to rock, man. We're finally doing it, gentlemen. I know, dude. This We're is years crazy. into this podcast, and this is our first Paul Thomas Anderson movie. We've actually gotten a couple emails of people saying, "When are you going to do a PTA feature?" Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a uh, pretty much. A, I'd say there's every one of his films would be good, but especially like this, The Master, and then of course, I mean, you could do Boogie Nights, but like, I feel like they're really rich to uh, to talk about. You know, real quick, everyone yeah. just give uh, off the top of your head top three uh, PTA in order. Let's go. Let's get. Let's jump this podcast off. I'm gonna go. Boogie Nights one. There will be blood two. Uh, Magnolia three. <laughs> oh, Ooh, okay. I'm gonna go. Uh, there will be blood one. Boogie Nights two. Oh, gosh, I have differing watches of. Sometimes I watch Magnolia. I love it. Sometimes I don't. I'm gonna have to go. Punch Drunk Love Three. Okay. That's the solid, exact same solid, order. Solid yeah, for me, that's, that's the exact list? same order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, All right. yeah. I'm not. I'm not a huge like. I mean, Magnolia is great, but it's it's like too draining for me. You know. Yeah, I like the drainingness. I I I I know what you mean though. Yeah, I, I like. I can take it in doses. I can watch it sparingly, but it's one of those ones where I'm like, oh, jeebus, you know. For real, yeah. M- Masters mid-level for me. Inherent yeah. Vice can suck it. I hate that movie. Uh, uh, and then what was his last? Oh yeah, I I, I like the other the, the 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 Daniel Day Lewis dress movie was pretty cool too. Oh, but, uh, I didn't see it. What was it called? Um, Phantom, Phantom, Phantom Thread. Um, and then we're also missing we're also missing Sydney slash Hard Eight, his first movie that he's kind of he has. Disown? No, no. It got like taken from him and recut, but then he got his cut out. It's it's probably it, it, you can tell it's his first beginner film, um, mm. for sure. Uh, Sorry for the technical difficulties, everybody. Yeah, I was gonna say Phantom Thread, and I'm laughing. I was laughing at the fact that nobody talked about Inherent Vice, which I also agree can that movie can suck. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> for real. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the one that people forget. I was so disappointed. Yeah, they forget that it's his, even you know. Some like, people love it, yeah. But it, I think I, I'm I'm convinced they just love Neil Young, and not him. I think I think they love the book, and because they love the idea of the film so much, I think that's why yeah. they love it. To be honest, you know, you gotta love like, the idea for a film you're reaching. <laughs> it, it's not really just it doesn't work on its own merits. Anyway. Uh, Jared, you want to kick us yeah. off here? Anyway, yes, yes, yes. So, as is already evident today, we're talking about There Will Be Blood, the 2007 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. As always, we're going to go around and get an idea of what people react, what people thought about this movie the first time they saw it, and what was it like revisiting it for this podcast. Let's start, I think last time we started with Ryan, so let's start with Austin this time. You know, it, this is one of those films that I think gets better as I get older and as my my cinematic ability uh like my interpretive abilities get richer and more intriguing and more interesting because this film actually gets better with every single viewing this last viewing um last night and then i watched i rewatched actually the second half this morning because i was pretty sleepy last night but um it's so good there's so much detail there's so much i mean the performances are obviously just ridiculous you could you could talk for 
weeks about just the performances but there's so much detail in in the the development of the characters like there's one thing in particular I, I really wanted to talk about that I noticed this time but it has to do with the signature Daniel Plainview's signature which I didn't notice before but when it's first uh, zoomed in on in that extreme close-up it's this perfect signature it's gorgeous you know and then at the very end he writes a check and it's all messy and nasty and the ink is all fat and you're like oh fuck and, and it's just this wonderful simple detail that really kind of bookends this um degradation of this character stuff like that that like i never noticed before you know? i never noticed so, that right it's it's one of those tiny little details and you just look at that and you're like Fuck, PTA is a master craftsman. And not only is Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, the performance by Dano amazing, but this is just, we throw around the word loosely, but this is a masterpiece. It is absolutely amazing. So I I fucking love this movie, and I think it's one of those ones that gets better upon repeated viewings. I loved it the first time I saw it, and I've seen it maybe six or seven times. I think it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think people have talked, have said that this is his most Kubrickian film. And when I, whenever I think about that close up of the signature, I think, of course, the last shot of Barry Lyndon, H. Lyndon, the end. Actually, I think it's maybe the second to last shot. Anyway, Ryan, what do you think about this movie? I mean, yeah, it's a fucking masterpiece. What, what else is there to say? But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, what you have here, in my opinion, is like. It, you know, there's genre pieces, which this, and, and then there's completely singular works of art that you're just like, how did this get made? Who who made this? Who was the person that made it? And how did, how is it so perfect? You know, and this is one of those things where, like, only PTA could have really made this movie. Well, you have, you know, he's a he's one of those film fan directors, like kind of when that was becoming a thing, like Quentin Tarantino, Steven Soderbergh, all these guys that were obsessed with movies, watched, consumed a million of them on VHS, and so they had this amazing film. Uh, encyclopedic knowledge but then PTA is a guy that also is so creative that he can kind of take all the, all that stuff that he's consumed and then also knows that the audience wants something different and he, he make his own thing here you know like mm. like this is a period piece you know gold uh, t- time uh, uh, like horror movie based psychological mm-hmm, horror mm-hmm. movie but also has uh, you know religious overtones you know uh, it's a kind of a fable in a weird way it's got it's a family movie it's got all these other genres that that combine and then when you when you mix in johnny greenwood's insane score to what insane PTA shot score. it really yeah. that juxtaposition is is what to me makes you know uh this uh its own unique piece of art that doesn't that I don't know doesn't exist in film outside of itself like uh yeah the tone the tone between someone like PTA then the Cohen brothers, who are also like pastiche, kind of known for the the love of cinema, the cinephilic type of filmmakers, and then Tarantino, they're they're, they're obviously completely different. There's like three different ways of how they express their cinephilia, but there's something like you said so singular about PTA that I just I don't know. I find him to be as a craftsman. I find him to be a little bit different. I love Tarantino and I love the Cohen brothers, but there's something for lack of a better term, there's just something more artistic about what PTA I, is doing. I would call it, yeah, because uh, that's a good point, but like Tarantino, you know, he, he's absorbed all this media and then he really knows how to kind of create those what the fuck moments, those exciting, like like using 
you know, image and sound to create kind of like, like thrilling moments. And it's, it's all, but at the end of the day, it's all about just kind of him manipulating the form. Whereas PTA can do that, but also know, like, I would call it like just human and deep, like is, is his specialty. He, he knows how to really uh, take cinema and then also make you feel human and feel emotions and feel all, you know, make you get into the mind of this evil man, you know, get into the mind of all the, the unsuspecting townspeople. And, but, but then across his, all of his movies, he's just really good about, uh, about the emotion, emotional aspect of movies, which are fucking, you know, the cornerstone of movies. So yeah, I just can't speak highly enough of this movie. I, I will say just quick antidote, Jerry, were you there at fantastic fest? What? God damn it. I, I, I hate this story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I remember you like got kicked out. So basically, the American premiere, maybe even the world premiere, the of this world film premiere was at this of this film movie. festival. Yeah, the world premiere of this movie was at this film festival that Ryan and I would uh, regularly attend back in Austin. And I had a pass that I could go to it, but I also had a test that night. And some schmuck in line for another movie told me that because they didn't announce what it was going to be. They had these secret screenings, and someone told me it was going to be this movie that everyone's already forgot about called Six Days of Night. Or something like that. Some zombie movie or something. And so I was like, well, fuck, I'm not going to like miss a test and like fail out of this class for that movie. And then it was There Will Be Blood with Paul Thomas Anderson there. And I know that your story was that you were this like the the, the last one that or the first person who was not allowed in. Right? I was and then you tried to sneak in and got. Yes, out. I was the person like like they kept going like, all right, one more person. Nope, no more people. No more people. One more person. I was like, I'm staying into this line until the end. And sure enough, they kept letting more and more one more person. And then finally they hard cut it off of me they're like no that guy cannot go in no one is getting in i try to sneak in i get kicked out i'm just so infuriated also i spent the night there trying to get tickets to this every night of this festival i would spend the night in a tent like a crazy person outside the movie theater uh and trying to get tickets (laughs) to the secret screening i got into like two of the four you know but that was the one that well i i once i saw i was sitting there like all right what's it gonna be and i just see pta walk in the theater and my brain did the algorithm like oh my god they're about to show there will be blood at fantastic fest and i'm one person away i mm. I, I, I it'll haunt me for the rest of my I days mean, that's probably that's probably the best screening in the history of that festival and we both fucking missed it yeah lame uh, i'm just gonna uh very quickly say that any superlative that you throw at this movie is deserved yeah. I mean, masterpiece, one of the greatest movies of all time, one of the greatest performances of all time, mm. one of the most profound movies of all time. All of it is 100% deserved. Mm. So I'm just going to leave it at that and go into the room. I, 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 well, one last point is that is how fucking simple this movie is in terms of its story, you know, and, and the themes are so broad, but work so hard, you know, which makes them so accessible, I think, you know, just greed, human greed, you know, uh, to, to, to begin yeah. with. Greed, ambition, family, wealth, yeah, capitalism. Blood, yeah. Uh, you know you what? Know. There's, there's also not just the simplicity in the story, but even formally, it's rather not simple. Because obviously, when a master filmmaker makes it look simple, you realize how much effort goes into the cinematography, the shots, and the every, everything like Production that. It's constructed design. perfectly. But it's there's nothing where it's like crazy montage, crazy cuts, crazy voiceover. He's not doing something like he's trying to push the envelope. There's nothing fucking with the aspect ratio yeah, like in the lighthouse. Yeah, there's no, though, but but yeah, continue. Yeah, but 
but there's no like David Fincher, real technical savant kind of virtuoso stuff going on here. It's all like achievable things that you can probably point to any shot in this movie and describe how yes. it was done. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's no uh, incredible camera tricks, if that's what you're implying. That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, not a lot. Or like David Fincher always busting out like the newest and greatest like camera that can like swoop in and do like six flips and follow someone on a motorcycle. Yeah. Or like or like Michael Bay and and Bayhem. There's none of that shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, he, he, he right. does do the the pretty cool cinematic you know uh, uh, conventions of like 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 cutting out the sound when the guy can, kid goes deaf you know and kind of cool things with sure you know he's he's playing with every element of of the form in this movie but it's done but yeah. so sparingly it's, and tastefully and, camera. Yeah. and yeah and it's and it's and it's perfectly in line with the narrative it's like sometimes the formal elements almost they they rush too much the story and they don't they don't like set perfectly like they don't like fit in the notches or sometimes it's the other way where you're like oh it's just a little too boring like yeah it was just acting but it was just kind of like a static camera like master shot or something like yeah, that yeah. whereas this it, it just kind of locks together perfectly yeah it's not showy. Yeah. Every one of his movies are feel perfectly constructed. Like they had to be. Like that shot had to be that way. It does yeah. it, most of the time. Magnolia, I would say, feels there's obviously scenes that don't probably don't need to exist. An hour probably doesn't need to exist in that movie. But it's it's vignette based, so that kind of makes it different in form and structure. I mean, Magnolia feels, every time I watch it, it feels like a coke binge of a movie to me. There's all these just, like, swooping in shots and, like, high crane shots when there's really nothing quite going on. Mm. I think There Will Be Blood is kind of the opposite of that. But anyway, uh, let's get into the recap. We haven't even started breaking down this movie. <laughs> so, self-made independent oil man Daniel Plainview and his adopted son, H.W., are approached by Paul Sunday to sell information about his hometown of Little Boston, California, under which there is a whole ocean of oil. So, Daniel travels to the Sunday Ranch and meets Paul's pious brother, Eli, who wants to use the money his family receives from the sale to build his own church, the Church of the Third Revelation. Daniel buys up all the land he can in Little Boston and starts the process of drilling. When one of Daniel's wells erupts, H.W. is injured and loses his hearing. Frustrated and unable to care for the now deaf child, Daniel makes him drink whiskey to numb him. Meanwhile, a man named Henry has come to Little Boston, claiming to be Daniel's brother from another mother. Hmm. Daniel takes Henry under his wing and eventually has H.W. shipped off to school for the deaf. When Standard Oil comes to town to buy Daniel's proven wells, Daniel makes a scene at the negotiation table when one of the men suggests he could use his wealth to take care of his son. So instead, Daniel decides to build a pipeline to the sea and make a deal with Union Oil to avoid the railroad shipping costs. Shortly after the deal is struck, Daniel realizes that Henry is an imposter and murders him. In order to complete his pipeline, he has to humor the wishes of William Bandy, who asks him to become a member of Eli's church. At the sermon, Eli exacts revenge upon Daniel by making him scream that he has abandoned his child. Daniel is able to complete the pipeline, and H.W. returns with a teacher in tow. Years later, H.W. returns to Daniel to inform him that he will be starting his own oil company in Mexico. Daniel scorns him for this decision and tells him that he is nothing but a bastard from a basket. Eli visits Daniel to ask for money, but Daniel humiliates him before denying his request and finally murders him. End of movie. All right. But before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So most of us are stuck inside right now. Some of, some of us with not much to do except wait for things to hopefully go back to normal whenever that may be. Although for those of us in L.A., we just found out that it's not until August. Fuck me. Whatever. 
<laughs> One thing you could do to keep your mind limber and keep yourself from going insane is to learn some new skills. That's where Skillshare comes in. If you're looking to explore new skills or get inspired or deepen your existing passions, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore and discover thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics like graphic design, productivity, creative writing, film and video, freelancing, and more. And I want to emphasize the community aspect because during quarantine, finding a group of people online who share the same interests in you can be really rewarding. So if you're looking for a class to take, in the past I've recommended iPhone filmmaking, creating cinematic video on your phone, and creative nonfiction, write truth with style with Susan Orlean, but lately I've been focused on stuff that's a bit more lifestyle oriented. So today I want to recommend Everyday Minimalism, Find Common Creativity in Simple Living by Aaron Boyle. Um, because everyone's trying to live cheaply, simply, and find a sense of calm while being productive, and Aaron will teach you how to navigate stressful situations and how to make the best with less, not more. And less is more is something that I live by, so I definitely recommend Aaron's class. When you compare Skillshare to expensive in-person workshops or night classes, Skillshare is actually quite affordable. An annual subscription is less than 10 bucks a month, and right now they're offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months all you got to do is go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack for two free months of unlimited access to awesome classes. And now, back to the show. All right, guys. There's so much to talk about this movie. You know, I have, like, some pretty extensive notes, but part of me just wants to ask, like, what, what touches you the most about this movie or what impresses you the most about this movie? Because we can talk, we can break down the theme, theme by theme, but all of us seem to have a pretty personal connection to this movie. And I kind of want to lean into that. Yeah. So the first thing, cause I think there are a few things that really strike me, you know, themes of family themes of like individual ambition, uh, greed, corruption um like the degradation of of yourself being kind of a cruel human there's all these different themes and then of course there's like the battle between like religion and the entrepreneur right or the industrialist or the capitalist i guess you could say and so for me i think the most intriguing conflict let's say is the one between daniel plainview and eli sunday in particular this reversal where it seems that one person gets an advantage and then it seems the next person gets the advantage and ultimately who wins is it's Daniel Plainview, right? And that's what the whole, the famous line, I drink your milkshake is really about. And I did a little bit of digging about like where PTA actually got that from and it's, there's uh, some some disagreement about the source of the it's idea. A, ba- a Baskin but, Robbins argument, right? What's that? Uh, no, nothing. I was making a. Oh, stupid, okay. I was making, oh, you're an making ice a cream joke. joke. I was like, okay. I, I, I didn't know. I was like, <laughs> I, I thought maybe there was like another element to this that I was unaware of. No, no. no. So, in like the 1920s, there's this famous scandal of the Harding administration called like the Teapot Dome scandal, where basically the Harding administration uh, leased out naval petroleum fields to uh, a couple oil companies for a really good price. Um, But basically they accept bribes from these private oil companies, right? And this guy stood up and made a speech. And apparently in it, he starts talking about how like if uh, if you can like suck out uh, you know, the oil from another distance or something like that it has to do with like sucking out your milkshake. Some people say that wasn't the speech and that it actually comes to like a 2003 speech or something like that. But the idea is, is that it's like extracting, if you will, all that is yours, all the goodness that is yours, right? And that's what I love about this is that you think at one point Eli humiliates 
uh, Daniel in the church when he forces Daniel to be like, I've abandoned my boy, like that whole speech, which is fucking amazing, right? So you think, oh, fuck, he's humiliated. But at the end, what happens is Daniel forces him to admit that he's a false prophet and that God is just a stupid superstition. And then basically the idea is when he says, I drink your milkshake, it's I suck up everything that is good of yours and this goes to his whole competition speech right like i hate competition i have to have everything kind of thing i got competition in me i've got competition in me i know but i love that it's like i need it all and i've extracted your very force your life force from you i've taken everything from you you thought you had some sort of upper hand on me but i win i'm the one who wins and i think that conflict is so intriguing and so gripping to kind of work through yeah but interesting, one of the things that I find about this movie that makes it so bleak is if we're talking about Daniel versus Eli, it's not like Eli is this benevolent figure. I mean, he's basically this egoist. Oh, yeah. He claims to be a vessel for the Holy Spirit, but he's just as much of a selfish egoist as Daniel. I mean, they're both a couple of charlatans. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I love how... Eli is always saying, you know, and then you can say my name when he's talking about how he wants to be introduced in front of the Derek. And um, when Daniel finally gives Eli the $5,000 he owes him, Eli does not use the money to further the Church of the Third Revelation and instead instead leaves town to basically promote himself on the radio. Mm. And um, also the very nature of his healing is clearly a scam. But I also, one of the most clever things about this movie is that You know, the first time I watched it, I was pretty convinced that, you know what, Daniel, he still really did love H.W. This whole thing about him just needing a pretty face to buy land, you know, that's just him being uh, someone that's not capable of being vulnerable. But I think some of the really interesting things about this movie is that there's a fair amount of evidence just in the way that the movie is cut together that... He really did just use the money, use HW to buy land. Like any time that he's trying to like sell or excuse me, buy land from these kind of down home country folk, he immediately brings up family, whether it's how many children do you have? Because he knows that they're going to reciprocate with the question of a question, sir, where is your wife? And then he says, oh, he just makes up some bullshit story, whether it's whether it's my uh, wife died in childbirth, it's just now me and my son, and then it immediately cuts to an oil well just gushing, mm. you know, because it's it's the family element that he was able to appeal to as a completely false charlatan that got that that gusher to start. Well, then let me ask you this. Pl- blowing gold Let, let me ask place. you this, because I'm, I'm tempted to agree, but then there's an element that I, I find really intriguing. Remember when the little girl is getting beaten because she doesn't say her prayers, and he threatens the father in that very sort of like indirect way, yeah. right? So there's a sense in which yeah. he does seem to have some element of a concern for humanity. Like when he finds out that people die in the well early on, like it sucks, but there seems to be an actual set of concerns. So the question is, is it purely business concern? Like, oh, fuck, I lost a worker? Or is there a sense where there's human empathy, but it's just somehow mixed in there with also an opportunism, right? I was just going to say, I, I feel like for his character, it is, he looks as people, at, at, he looks at people like pawns, you know, like, yeah, he, he, he lost a worker. He lost money because of this. And, and, 
you can really tell his whole uh, attitude towards this in that that first speech. You know, when he's when he's trying to persuade the whole all the townspeople, uh, mm. and and the second one of those where he's trying to persuade those two towns to to let him come in there and you he's very persuadable you know he's like he knows how to talk to people he knows how mm-hmm. to manipulate people and but and when you you know by the end of the movie that he he doesn't give a fuck about people at all he just like everything when he was like look we'll give your people uh we'll make schools for your kids we'll uh you know we're gonna bring farms and you're gonna have food more food than you've ever had you know sure it, 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 it's kind of uh, uh, gets to the whole uh, it's capitalism, like which is what this whole movie is about. He's basically like, look, you'll get this and I will get all my money from this oil. You know, I will get my milkshake and I'll give you the little dribble of the milkshake. But, hey, it's better than your than your condition right now. And and people buy it. You know, he doesn't care about those people's well-being necessarily, you know, at all, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree that he doesn't really care about the townsfolk. I mean, that's all bullshit. But I will say that after I rewatched it this last time, you know, when he's on the train with baby HW, he does smile when HW's playing with his mustache. There are some kind of nice tender moments. Uh, there's like a flashback scene where HW steals his hat and and Daniel's playing with him. I do think that there is some humanity that we see in Daniel, although it's constantly being undercut. But... Um, I, I, just to to comment on that, like like uh, I think that's kind of the the degradation of his soul through the movie. Obviously, he starts like as a capitalist, he ends as a capitalist. But he's like you're saying, he starts on the train. We get that that tender moment with him playing with the kid. I do think that is the one big, and it's a, the, a shot for that is so long. Obviously, he wants us to ha- have that sink in that he's having this tender human moment with a baby, and and I do think that it's just after a life of greed ambition and getting everything he's ever wanted you kind of like that's kind of pta's comment a little bit on just what that does to the human soul and then and then and i don't know if he's uh, it's kind of like what we're arguing about now is is he retroactively saying i never cared about you or anything or is he and that moment on the train was bullshit and the, the whole time he's just looking like oh i can't wait to make money off this baby that's playing with my mustache right or now or is he just or, cruel and he's being threatened and yeah. like jared said it's that moment of vulnerability and just like he got pissed at the guy from standard oil or whichever one it was when he says like this is how you could you could take care of your kid and he's like you don't tell me how to raise my fucking boy again it's I can't allow any weakness to be shown in me and as soon as that starts to get exposed i attack and maybe that's what he's doing is he's attacking his boy because at that point he's like, oh, now you're going to be my competitor? Well, fuck you. I never loved you to begin with, you shithead. And guess what? There's nothing in me. I'm sorry. There's nothing in you that is of me because you're just an orphan. So it's the cruelty is sort of like justification for him to kind of protect himself because of this lifelong that he's given over to brutality, to just pure greed and his own like avarice and his own personal ambitions. Maybe that's it. Because I do wonder at the beginning if there's a sense in which I, I don't think that, that we, we don't we're not introduced to him as a bad guy. He's just ambitious. He's trying to get some fucking gold. He's and in he a fucks hole up his, by himself. And he's in a hole by himself and he's just trying to make it. He's trying and that's when his signature's really crisp too. I'm gonna play a lot into this signature. But there's <laughs> something about like the crispness and the sharpness and the clarity of ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition. And then that's that's when he's okay. But it's the question of how much can that be degraded as you become more cruel and more brutal. And as this system, as you just kind of dehumanize yourself by just simply becoming a machine in this larger machine. And I think that's what you see as the journey, you know? 
and and yeah, absolutely. And uh, to piggyback on that, like you know, me as the uh, uh, unrelenting capitalist of this group, you know, and uh, uh, I I love what this movie says because it's not like I'm you know like I call myself that, but like like it's not like I think that that capitalism is awesome. Therefore, it's okay to be greedy and and a, and a piece of shit. You know, it's just that yeah. Uh, your greed helps other people in uh, indirectly, so I think that that's cool, you know. But but it it there is a very powerful message to be had, and you know, lots of movies do it. Uh oh, we lost Jared. It looks like, but but just that, yeah. Money can corrupt the soul. Greed can corrupt the soul. Ambition can corrupt the soul, and don't let it happen. That doesn't mean that money and ambition and, and you know, I, well, I think greed is probably not that good. But those money and ambition are necessarily bad, or you know, whatever. It's just how does that affect your behavior? How does that affect you with other people? And that's kind of what PTA is saying is that you can't go down this rabbit hole of being. Uh, there's a little bit of Daniel Plainview in all of us, and you don't want to, you know, you want to put him as, at bay as much as possible. And uh, and yeah. Yeah, I wanted to comment on that very beginning part that Austin brought up where he's in a hole by himself with the dynamite and all that. Uh, there's a great shot that a couple, that uh, people have commented on a lot where after he breaks his leg in the hole, you see him after he finds the rock that I believe is indication that there's oil down there. I, I don't know if maybe it's silver. I don't know exactly what he's looking for. Well, because he signs, he signs a silver for. and gold contract after that. So I think it's... Okay, so it must be silver. Something. But anyway, he's just basically inching forward with his broken leg and the camera tilts up and we see that he's got miles to go. He's miles away from civilization. And so we make this logical leap that he literally inched forward with a broken leg until he made it to civilization. That's the amount of ambition that this man has. But I, he inched forward one inch at a time to make it back to civilization to sell that silver for miles. That's just how ambitious this guy is. Well, I, would you call that ambitious or would you call that just having to survive because you're in an awful situation? The, 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 20, the 127 hours version of There Will Be Blood where we saw him go through the desert, you know, that's a whole movie in itself. But I love the, yeah, I love that we cut. The, the cut is just so amazing, you know, because, yeah, it, that tells a whole story when, when all of a sudden it's like, all right, he's a, he survived. We know kind of. Where he had to go, that's fucked, you know. So that that just really gives a foundation to his character to what he's gone through to me, rather well, than and just. Then, you know. And then that that motif is repeated, going down the shaft, right? Then you have the workers who are down there now. Now Daniel doesn't have to do it when he's setting up the oil derricks, right? But he's got his workers down there in the midst. Well, there's one bit where he's down when they first when he first becomes an oil guy, right? When they first strike oil, that's when he's down there and he's gasp, gasping for the fresh air. So there's this motif of like going down into the earth that you have to extract these these minerals, these precious resources from the earth in order to build on top of the earth, in order to build civilization. And it really reminds me of the old classic, and we talked about this in our Logan film, but like the classic Western idea that you have the man of violence who comes from the wilderness, who uses violence in order to help build civilization, but can't remain a part of civilization. So he has to leave, right? The famous shot at the end of Searchers, John Wayne can't enter the door because he's a man of violence. Shane has to ride off into the wilderness again at the end of Shane because he's a man of violence. Logan, he's not allowed to become a part of civilization. He has to go down 
to Mexico and become like a fucking limo driver and shit like that. Like he can't become, that's part of like the kind of Western motif. You get something kind of similar here. There's a story about the building of the West. There's a story about the building of civilization, but it's a little bit different because this is different. The world, the civilized, quote unquote, civilized world is built by greed, it's built by violence, it's built by extraction, except that now the the man of wilderness doesn't have to go away. The man of the wilderness becomes a part of society. So society is constituted by this violence, and then the man of violence becomes the kind of like leader, the, the capitalist, the figurehead, the elite of that society. And that's something that I think is really interesting that you see from that him dragging himself out of the hole to making himself and then to becoming a leader in this world who's even cruel and maybe despised by other people, but that's what the system is. When you say, though, that those are two different kinds of kind of archetypes like like john wayne is literally an outsider from society he's just a guy like the hired gun this weirdo that doesn't relate to people whereas daniel plainview is like a sociopath that relate that relates to people so much he knows how to use people to get what he wants you know to uh which to me are kind of two very different i mean they might be kind of cut from the same cloth you know because they are very rugged you know individuals that will take through force and brutality what they desire i guess but but uh but yeah i don't know well, it's a diff- it's a different narrative i think i think the classical western narrative is one myth it's a type of myth that americans love to tell about how the west was won right it ignores of course the exploitation and land theft and things like that of indigenous peoples it ignores a lot of that stuff and it just kind of likes to praise it but it still wants to kind of have a critical idea like ah the man of violence just can't quite stay in the civilized world so it has to go back out but we romanticize it like ooh like how great is this figure right whereas this is different it's similar it's still kind of telling a different story or kind of a similar story but it's a little bit later, first of all, right? Like, it's not like the middle of the 1800s. This is, or even the late 1800s. This is like at the turn of the century, at the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s, and then really more into the 1900s. So it's a little bit different because the myth is is being told from a different angle. But I think, I think yeah, it's definitely different, but kind of just a different mythological story that's being told. That, that shot that you mentioned of the searchers, the last shot of the searchers with John Wayne can't go through the doorway. I think about that shot Probably once a day. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah. I love that movie. Uh, uh, speaking on that, like, like you would ask kind of an open-ended question earlier about just what touches you the most from this movie. And to me, it's the, all the cinematic stuff. Just like, like we have, uh, we kind of touched on it, but the, the whole opening, what is 25 minutes without any dialogue being smoke, spoken. When I, when I saw that the first yeah. time, you know, it, it's very reminiscent of, of, you know, the, obviously like the 2001 opening and kind of, I, to me, they're kind of have similar themes in the sense of like, this movie to me is about the, you know, uh, yeah, the, the 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 survival gene in our bodies, but also the greed gene in our bodies, how it's just always there. And then, you know, kind of similar to 2001, it's the, you know, the intelligent, uh, I guess, uh, uh, gene. Um, but also, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, the most the, the moment when I first watched the movie that really just I knew that this is one of my favorite movies ever was was the shot just going 
the push in on Eli as he's doing his sermon in the kind of the rundown church, the first church, or I guess maybe his new church, but it's like a small one. Uh, and then, and then it pushes all the way back and he's like, cast me out demons. And everyone's just going ape shit. All the people are just so bought in all the townspeople. And I was just like, very, I was like scared, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And all he was doing was pushing the camera in slowly and pushing it out while this very powerful performance was in front of us. And yeah, it was just, it's simple things like that. He knows how to, to, to move you with. Yeah, and that scene is so important too because that's the first time you really start to realize that Eli is a fucking huckster, right? Like before then you think like, oh, maybe he's really an authentic preacher. But now he's got this old lady who has arthritis in her fingers and he's doing this bullshit like theatrical show like the faith healers that you see on TBN and shit today that are like trying to be like, I can be bit by a snake and I'll be healed or if there's anyone here, like it's all of that all of that bullshit that we kind of like are automatically we, that we tap into when we see it and we're like, ah, so the use of the camera techniques, like it heightens the drama as this reveal is, is being brought to the fore that, oh, this guy's not exactly this kind of a selfless preacher who's concerned about creating a Christian community, like an ethical Christian community. No, 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 no. He's, he's got a different sort of game that he's playing. One thing I wanted to say about that shot that Ryan was talking about where the camera's following Eli as he casts the devil out of his church. It's such a good moment because he goes, and it left, and the camera is outside of the church because the camera has taken on the position of the devil or the demon that he's cast out. And then after he says, and it left, it immediately cuts to a close-up of Daniel still in the church as if to say, oh, maybe he's still here. And, and that's so cool because the audience then kind of take on the role or the position like alongside the devil, right? So the camera being cast yeah. out and then we are also being cast out. So it kind of creates that alienating, like distancing, like we're being pulled away from, like we're not allowed anymore, you know? It, the church has been purified. So one last thing it would behoove us to talk about before we get into the mailbag is just the title of the movie, There Will Be Blood, and just the motif of blood. Because it's not only familial blood, because Daniel places a considerable emphasis on the important of importance of blood relationships. Like he tells H.W., there's none of you in me, you're just a bastard from a basket. He only takes on Henry because he believes that he is his blood brother and then, you know, kind of overreacts when he realizes that he's an imposter. And one of the only times that we see legitimate sadness in the film is when Daniel cries while reading his brother's journal entry after killing Henry. Mm. He doesn't even cry after H.W. gets hurt. Mm. That's very interesting. But there's also, yeah, there's also uh, obviously blood as kind of the blood of Christ. I, because I, Eli's always saying, you know, there's truth in the blood. I will say that, that that I remember vividly thinking, you know, the movie is what, two and a half hours long, two hours, 20 minutes or something like that. And I remember thinking yeah. like like an, an hour and a half into the movie, I'm like, there is a, a significant lack of blood in a movie called There Will Be Blood. There better be some blood. There, there will be blood. There better yeah. will be blood in this movie called There Will Be Blood. Mm. And then I loved the moment whenever he hits him with the bowling ball and then he's cut the... And, there was, and then there was blood. And I go, oh, there, there's the blood. 
that there will be yeah. blood. There, there is the blood they were talking about. And so a couple goes, other I'm interesting. Finished. The end. A couple, a couple other interesting things. Uh, the bit about him saying like, "Oh, there's nothing of me in you." To HW, that's about blood ties, right? There are no blood ties, so that's kind of an interesting thing. That's a blood motif. And then I think the thing that cuts through the whole film, oil. Oil blood is of the, the earth. blood of the earth. Right, and so it's yeah. about cracking open the skull of the earth. I think that's so Don't important shake of the for us earth. to understand. That's right. It's 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 extracting. It's cracking open the earth, and the earth is bleeding. And you have to. This is why he's a man of violence, right? You have to make a little bit of blood. What is it? You have to crack a couple eggs to make an omelet. In order to make the omelet of civilization, you got to crack the fucking crust of the earth. And that's exactly what he does. He's always making blood. He's all, and that's and sometimes it's worse than others. Sometimes it's just shooting out and sometimes it's like the earthquake seepage you know where it's just trickling and so it's kind of like oh you know this is going to happen and then other times it's like a violent avaricious greedy endeavor that makes the earth bleed and so i think that that the whole film is extremely violent if we attune ourselves into these different ways of seeing you know totally yeah. And on another note, it's a brilliant title just in terms of like a, a film marketing thing. Like, I want to oh, see yeah. a movie called There Will Be Blood. I don't know what the fuck it's about. I want to see the movie called There Will Be Blood and I want to see the blood. And uh, uh, and also, it, it, it's it's an indicator of the, the relentless momentum of this movie. It's like, literally, there's a movie called, the movie's called There Will Be Blood. So it's like, all right, we're anticipating something that's, Right. violent and fucked up and crazy and then the movie with johnny greenwood's crazy score just has that feeling of like every moment you're like something's about to happen so we're going towards something oh my god this is building this whole thing is building we're just watching this guy get deeper and deeper into this shit you know um yeah and create his empire uh uh, uh i i love that about this movie the, the momentum totally. of it cinematically now, real quick, can I before we jump into the, before we jump into the mailbag, can I say one more thing? So, there's a one more final theme that I think is so curious to think about, and it is that relationship between religious salvation and like what we might call economic satisfaction, but that I think oftentimes takes on the role of a type of salvation. That in a world of modern where where society is built on capitalist modernity, um, what you have is you have like the real sort of hollowing out of religion, which I think is really interesting too because Eli isn't some really nice ethical preacher. He becomes a kind of greedy, self-indulgent type of figure too, which is I think important because even even he is corrupted. So even his religion is corrupted. So even American Christianity is corrupted, so to speak. So you have that corrupted form of a type of cultural expression, which is a religious expression, and then you have obviously the kind of greedy capitalist in Daniel Plainview. But the idea is that both of them are trying to offer a competing type of narrative, a competing narrative for salvation, for satisfaction, to give the people something, right? To give the people of the church some kind of placebo to make them feel better, or like an opiate, right? The opiate of the masses kind of quote from Marx, right? So he, that's something for them. Um, of course, while the preacher is benefiting himself and becoming famous and shit like that. 
And same with Daniel Plainview. He's giving the town schools and he's giving them money so that they can buy dresses and food and they're going to have these, he talks about how we're going to dig irrig irrigation ditches and you're going to have water, which means we're going to have agriculture and you're going to be able to have bread now. You can't even have bread, but now you can. So again, here's the salvation that I can offer while I'm ultimately equipping myself with just accumulating capital and accumulating capital, right? But again, the ultimate thing is, is that it's about salvation and who wins in the end? It's Daniel Plainview who wins in the end. That's, again, the I drink your milkshake. Him drinking the milkshake is that his vision of salvation is the one that wins out because that's what capitalism can offer. Capitalism can offer a more sort of totalizing, if you will, uh, logic of salvation. It's the one that it encompasses everything. And that, I think, is what's so interesting that, that we can also think about, you know? Yeah. He drinks the blood of lamb from Bandy's trap. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good impression. Also, what? Oh, thank you. I was I was going to ask what what is your most quotable part of this movie? That's mine. That's my favorite line. <laughs> I I love the I band I abandoned my boy. Yeah, I abandoned like, my I, boy. I abandoned my son. I abandoned my son. I abandoned my son. I abandoned my boy. That scene for me because the shot you have the big cross with the sunlight coming through, and you have the two of them, and that's the first time that Daniel has been humiliated, and you can see the pain on his face that he just fucking does not want to give in to this pipsqueak of a preacher who he has no respect for, but he's only doing it so that he can get some fucking money because he knows he needs that land. <laughs> and he does it, but then yeah. but then it's almost like as he says the mantra, like, I've abandoned my son, he almost starts to... Uh, does he believe it, or is it just that he's humiliated and his fucking anger is 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 just bubbling because he's so humili... Oh, that scene to me. And so I've abandoned my son, I've abandoned my son, I've abandoned my boy. Like, uh, that's the one. I, I got the competition in me. I think that that's probably number one, oh, yeah. and then and then the, the milkshake yeah. has to be up with there. these, and then the people. milkshake, of course. of course. Yeah, of you, course. You gotta have the milkshake, of course. And bastard from a basket. I mean, lots of lots of. It is a fun. Uh, like I, I I read an interview once that PTA kind of thinks of it as a comedy of sorts, which his fucking weird twisted sense of humor I can see. There's a lot of really funny moments with uh, mm -hmm. where they hold on Daniel Plainview, where he probably was like, "This is funny more than than you know cinematically good." Oh, oh yeah! Like just seeing Daniel's frustration when Eli is talking about how, oh, and then uh, you will invite me up to the Derek, and I will bless the well, and just seeing his frustration, yeah. like that's fine. <laughs> uh, well, and then when he doesn't, and then when he doesn't, and he invites the girl up, that's funny. That's funny as fuck. Oh yeah. So there, there is yeah. a lot of there is a lot of humor in this. Yeah, it's a great movie to see with an audience, mm -hmm. R.I.P. audience. I know. Um, Never see a movie in a theater again. I I, I kind of had a question. To, don't don't say that. <laughs> I I kind of had a question to pose to Austin. What? How, how, how do you think uh, Ayn Rand would feel about this movie? What do you think her review would be? Uh, fucking Daniel Plainview is an ethical hero that we should all try to be like. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, she he's just like him. he's like, just what, like what did Galt. He do wrong in... Besides murdering those people. <laughs> That's right. Fuck God. God is a superstition, and do what you got to do to maximize your power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, we're going to go into the mailbag. Uh, first, we're going to hit up some voicemails. So you can call us at 213-534-8807 or 21-ELF-HUT-07. Uh, let's hear one from Valerie. Hi, uh, my name is Valerie. I'm from Atlanta. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, for, you know, doing the reviews for all these great movies. I actually watched the platform um, a couple of weeks before you guys came out with the podcast, and I was really hoping you guys would cover it. 
Um, but yeah, my commentary was supposed to kind of address the end of the movie. Um, you guys did bring up a lot that the final level of the of the movie was 333. Um, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Catholic faith, um, but the 333 is symbolic of the Trinity, um, which is uh, it's God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so all of that in combination, it was kind of what I took it to mean was a representation of the holiest of people or the holiest number can be found at the lowest levels. Um, or the the mission of Christ can actually be found in the lowest of the low in society, you know, being represented by this tiered system. Um, as far as the end, I don't think um, it's we're supposed to know what goes on with the trust and whether they find the child. Um, I think it's more that the child was the Messiah reincarnation or the second coming of this Messiah. Um, and everything that happens after the child reaches the chefs or, you know, the, the top floors, um, is kind of undisclosed to the regular human eye. So I think it was intentional that it was left with such an open ending. Um, I don't think it means 666. Um, I think that was just a step too far. Um, but yeah, let me know what you guys think and, uh, if there's any more ideas on that. Once again, thank you so much, and uh, have a great day, and stay safe. That's very interesting, actually. Like, uh, and it kind of, you know, because we were really struggling to make a one-to-one case for the for what the movie was talking about, and I like the idea of of the restaurant, the kitchen, and that guy being, I guess, God or religion or whatever higher power, and they're giving us our their the resources. You know that we have like like they're giving us the only food that we have. We ha- we have to decide how we split it up, which is kind of like a, c- could be a metaphor for Earth. And like, all right, we don't know who's up there giving it to us. We don't know what they're all about. But here we are on Earth. We have uh, and we have these resources. How are we going to split it up? Are we all going to do it evenly, or is some people going to take most of it? You know, uh, uh, that I like way more than doing it a one-to-one to any economic system. And I also kind of like her thing about the kid being the Messiah. You know, it's like, like, which is, is a one-to-one on, the re- on, on uh, uh, Jesus ascending back up to heaven and stuff and kind of proving his case. So I like that email or that, that voicemail. That made the movie kind of work more for me. Um, I still maintain that that the little girl just splatted on the ceiling of the restaurant, though. Uh, when she- <laughs> we we got an email from James during the last podcast, and he says the platform girl hit that ceiling at a 180 miles per hour. It was like dropping a hefty bag of chili dropped off. Oh the roof. God, yeah, <laughs> gross, but yes, vivid, but yes. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great voicemail. Um, that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about the mysticism that I think at the end. The only thing that I would say is, is there's a lot of like speculation in Christian theology about what the second coming is, right? Like is it a literal return of Jesus? You have all these false prophets that try to say like I'm actually the literal embodiment. Like you, everyone from David Koresh to like the Moonies and stuff like that, they all have their leader that says like I am the incarnation. I am the second coming of Jesus. 
And so when they're constantly telling the main character, like, what do you think, you're the Messiah? What do you think, you're the Messiah? I think they're kind of doing a couple of things. One, they're shitting on the idea that just any person can claim to be the second coming. But again, we talked about this a bit. There's something about him being a dude, right? Like a European, Western-looking dude, rather than the person who ends up being the, quote, message is a young girl, right? So there's something about youthfulness, right? Like Jesus talks about how wisdom will come from the mouth of babes. There's something about this being like, maybe not anti-patriarchy, but critical of, let's say, like Western patriarchal domination and oppression uh, that religion is often used for its own benefit, right? And so then I think that there's really something interesting that that's the salvation of the message. It's not the panna cotta, It's not the men who can control it. It's that they have to relinquish control and give it over to this young female. And she's the one who's going to be the embodiment of the message, the embodiment of salvation. And then we had somebody comment in the YouTube comments down below, and I thought this was so fucking profound. And the only reason I didn't think about this is because I've spent more time in Protestantism than in Catholicism. But they said that this is a story about purgatory. And I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, it is. This is about purgatory, and how do you get out of purgatory? It's through certain good deeds, it's through faith, it's through um, obedience, and so that's this, maybe it's this message about how is it that you get out of purgatory? What saves you? Well, what is it? It's it's the Messiah who goes down into hell, according to the formulations, proclaims victory to the captives down in hell, and then ascends upwards, right? That's the idea of the old formulation, and then maybe that's being repeated in a, a sort of second coming. And I thought that was kind of maybe something interesting to think about, too, that it's this, how are people saved? It's about relinquishing your control, giving over to the message or to the true Messiah, to the true source of salvation, and then that's how you can get out of purgatory. That's how you can find ultimate peace. Oh my God! Do you think this that movie is a re, just a retell, an adaptation of J.J. Abrams' Lost? <laughs> All right, we're running a little bit long, so we're gonna do one more voicemail, and then uh, you guys can still hit us up on emails. We'll do some of the platform ones for next week. Uh, you can hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. But let's do one more voicemail from Anonymous. I've heard about those guys. Hi guys, um, I just um, I, I, I listened to your podcast about the platform, but uh, um, I was thinking about it. And I think it's actually I think that it's an involuntary uh, critique of um, socialism. Uh, if you think about it, it's a prison first of all. Um, there's scarcity and rationing, um, so probably everything is based on a misunderstanding on both capitalism and socialism. Um, it would be great to hear your thoughts about it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so it, uh, if it is, then I think what it would be a critique of is what's sometimes referred to as central planning, right? So in certain theories of socialist economics, um, so central planning is the idea that you have a bureaucratic-centered system that is able to adequately allocate resources, right? And it's able to say, like, well, we have X amount of population that consumes Y amount of goods, therefore we can produce... Uh, enough things to meet everybody's needs. And then, of course, the reason that this gets criticized from the Christian perspective is for a couple of reasons, but it's famously called the socialist calculation problem that was formulated by, like, Mises and various other figures in the early 20th century. And the idea is, is that you can't adequately... Um, adjust for people's shifting needs. You can't adequately predict people's wants and things like that. And so also, who, who are you to say what my amount of needs are, you know? Right. It, yeah, and that's the other thing, right? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on level seven. I have 
the right to pig out, man. Right, right. So that and that could so it could be a critique from from that perspective. Yeah, I could totally see that as well. You know that uh, that you have like a limited amount of resources. Um, that are on offer. The only thing I would offer as uh, a foil to that is that capitalism actually requires um, it, it operates under a particular logic that assumes scarcity of resources. So it's sometimes referred to as like the Robinson Crusoe problem. So this is where you get certain theories of what's called the diminishing law of marginal utility or the law of diminishing marginal utility, I mean, um, where it's this idea that you only have scarce resources and so what you have to do is you have to figure out how to best allocate those resources based on human need and that, that's why the market is the and the price mechanism are the indicators that best allow us to allocate those resources. So both require scarcity. They both use scarcity. They both assume scarcity. At least that central planning program, it seems to say that there are scarce resources and we can allocate it the best. Capitalism says that, no, naturally there just are scarce resources. Um, and so we have to let the market do the allocation of those things because it'll kind of sort itself out. So there's there's kind of a different two different ways of approaching the issue of scarcity that I think you could actually probably level at this film as kind of like tackling both of them from different angles. Yeah, I, I think it, it, I agree with the caller uh, uh, and you what you just said that it kind of attacks both or or recognizes the it pros could. and recognizes could, yeah. the, the pros and cons of both. But specifically, one way I think that it, it, it's a critique of socialism is that it reminds you there's that moment where they're like, all right. We need to explain to everyone that, like, look, if we just did all this, like, it'll be good. But then what if they don't listen to us? Oh, well, then we got to beat them with bats or whatever. And it, <laughs> and it reminds right. you that at the end of the day, socialism right. is is enforced by force. You know, it's like if if the rich people don't agree to pay, you know, their 60 percent of taxes it takes to make, you know, the uh, to pay for all the stuff. You go to jail. They send you to jail. How do they do that? They, you know, they come to your house with guns. You know, like no one really talks about that in the, in you know, at Bernie Sanders rallies. You know, like, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh man, yeah, we're just all gonna pitch in and we're all gonna get this stuff. It's just gonna be great. It's like, okay, yeah, but how do we enforce that with giant guns? You know, and the force, the force Fuck of the state. Well, you know? to be fair, if we're going to if we're going to talk about Sanders, I mean, Norway doesn't use giant guns to enforce their amazing welfare system. And that's really what, what, what happens. If, uh, well, then that's sweet. Then if I'm rich there, I don't have to pay their exorbitant tax rate. Then that's awesome. They're not going to what are they going to do to me? You know, I just, like they got ni- they got they got knives, bro. Oh, OK. They'll take me a knife point. They're well, fucking Vikings, bro. They'll better. just put you in a headlock. That's all they need to do. <laughs> They don't need to. They yeah, don't need to use weapons, bro. They're just massive. An epic noogie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna go ahead and call it today. Just a reminder: you can still send us emails at movies at wisecrack.co. But before we go, where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? You can find me at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter. A tweet every once in a while, and uh, Ryan Shorts and Ryan's Game Show on YouTube. Release little videos there sometimes. For you to laugh at, forget about and Austin. Virus. Yeah, I'm super active on Twitter, so come and follow me there, Austin underscore Hayden. I'm also pretty active on Instagram, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I just did a story the other day where I took care of some cockatoos that fly around wild here in Sydney, and I befriended them. Uh I figured out, yep, they're amazing. They're gorgeous. So you can go check out shit like that. And then I've got my YouTube channel that I do. Just search for me, Austin Hayden Smith, where I'm like reading through the Bible, but I'm now also starting to do some other kind of like critical engagement with things, and I'll maybe do like stupid videos every once in a while like me befriending cockatoos and shit like that and then i do a philosophy podcast called owls at dawn 
that you can check out as well. Man, that's awesome. Cockatoos are beautiful. They're fucking gorgeous, man. They're, I got this one that every time he lands, and I think it's the same one because I've watched all the other ones, but this one, every time he lands, his little mohawk thing goes, and it comes out, and it's gore. It's like this bright yellow thing, and he's just all white, and it's just every time he lands. And I think it's him like being like, yeah, I'm the shit. You know? Dude, you're just like, chilling with birds with mohawks over there in Australia. That's, that's what inspired me to bleach my mohawk. My God. I know. You're, you're living the life, yeah, dude. Yeah, not, not fair, man. We're stuck inside. The lockdown could be worse. fucking August, dude. Are you shitting? Oh, my God. That hasn't sunk in Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck. Yeah. I, I, it's I worth it. Anyway, Ryan, take us out. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Show your milkshake. Right. Peace. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. That's the little